Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, plant your truth in our hearts and lives and change us today to be wise men and, men and wise women, Lord, and more like Jesus in every way. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, there's this guy, and he was driving in his car, and there's this woman in another car, and they have a, just a tragic car accident and total both cars. But both of them, fortunately, were uninjured. So the man, he crawls out of his car, and the woman crawls out of her car, and the woman looks over at the man and says, look at this. Our cars are total, but we're okay. This is a miracle. It must be a sign from God that we're supposed to meet and become friends. The man said, yes, this must be a sign from God. And then the woman said, she reached in her car debris, and she pulled out a wine bottle. She said, another miracle. My car is total, but the wine bottle is, is unhurt. This must be a sign from God that we're supposed to drink together and celebrate our good fortune. And so the woman took the uh, cap off the wine bottle and handed it to the man. The man said, yes, this must be a sign from God. This is a miracle. And he drank half the bottle, handed it back to the woman. She put the cap back on, handed it back to the man. The man said, aren't you going to have some? She said, no, I think I'll wait for the police. <laughs> First service, it took them a little longer to get it. At least you guys, I think, got it. But, you know, there is a, it sounds pretty quick thinking on her part, smart, but not so honest. We've been looking in the scriptures and the books of wisdom, and really, how are we supposed to walk in God's wisdom? in God's ways. And really, there are three books of wisdom in the Bible. And we spend most of our time in the book of Proverbs, the first book of wisdom. And then we spent just last week giving an overview of the second book of wisdom, the book of Ecclesiastes. And this morning, we're going to look at the third book of wisdom in the Bible, and that is the book of Job. And Job really is a book on how the wise man or the wise woman handles suffering. So that's what we want to look at today. We're going to be looking at the book of Job, and we'll be putting verses up on the screen as well. But if you have a Bible hand, you might want to open uh, to the book of Job. Because as the story starts off, it starts off like we think life should work. Job is a righteous, religious, good guy. He's living a good life. He's reverent before God. He prays for his children and even does sacrifices for them, his grown children, just in case they sin. And uh, he's just living this wonderful life, and God is blessing him tremendously. By the way, this is really key in our understanding of the book of Job. It starts off basically with this principle that the amount of blessing that we experience from God is proportional to our obedience to God. And that's what we see it happening in the life of Job. He's got this obedience to God and he's being prospered and blessed by God. But we don't read very far in the book of Job before we realize that trouble is coming to the land where Job lives, the land of Uz. Not the land of Oz. Not Oz, but Uz. The land of Uz is where Job lives. And in the land of us, bad things are going to start to happen to a very good man. Uz is a place 
not only where suffering hits, but where it hits without warning or explanation, leaving a wake of chaos and confusion and despair. And the truth is, everybody in this room and everybody watching online is going to spend some time in their life in a land of us. Some of you there are right now. Some of you just came out of a time of suffering, came out of the land of us. Some of you are headed to the land of us. It's right around the corner and you don't, you don't yet know it. Now, when we are reading in chapter one, we get to verse six and we have this radical shift in the scenery in the story of the book of Job, which is very important. See, it really is helpful for us to picture the story of Job as like a play that actually is played out in two stages. There's the upper stage where God is in heaven. Then there's a lower stage on earth where Job and his friends are. Now, as readers of the story, we get to see both stages. We get to see during the story what's happening on earth. And we, as we read the story, we get to see what's happening in heaven, what God is doing. But we need to understand that Job never got to see what was going on in the upper stage. He was never privy to what we got to, the information we got of what God was doing regarding his story. So let's jump into verse 6 of chapter 1 and pick up the story. Job 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God, and by the way, the term sons of God in the book of Job is a reference to angels. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him, on his body. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So Satan leaves with God's permission now to go attack Job. And Job loses all of his livestock. He loses his wealth. He loses his servants. And all 10 of his children are killed. And as we read the story, we're waiting to see how Job will respond to all this. Remembering that Job only sees what's going on in the lower stage on earth. He doesn't know what's been happening in the upper stage. He know, doesn't know anything about the conversation between God and Satan. Well, we're told how he responds. We're told that Job's response to all this is he grieves, he worships, 
and he speaks words of blessing and praise to God. And in all this, he did not sin. Let's read it. Job 1 verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But notice verse 22. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, the story is going to switch from the lower stage to the upper stage, where Satan is going to come again to God and ask for some permission. This time, he's asking God for permission to go at Job directly to his body, physically. Job chapter 2, verse 5. However, remember, this is Satan talking to God. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. So the Lord gives Satan his permission to attack Job physically now. Only you cannot kill him. Now, let's just stop and think what's happened so far. Satan is basically saying to God, God, Job is devoted to you and worships you and it's all in his own self-interest. It's just quid pro quo. You scratch his back, he scratches your back. See, Satan is charging God with being naive. He's essentially saying to God, you think Job loves you? He doesn't love you. He loves you like children love the ice cream man. You pull away blessing from him and he'll pull away devotion to you. You watch and see. So God lets Satan have at Job now physically. Here comes a second wave. Job 2, verse 7. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. So Job gets hit with a second wave. I want you to notice there is a a subtle, different response with Job this time. This time, there's no mention that he falls to the ground to worship God. This time, he doesn't say, the Lord gave and the Lord take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This time, he sits on a heap of ash and pain and agony. Maybe it's an act of grieving. Maybe he, he thought he might be thought to be leprous and he's isolating himself. But he is in agony sitting there by himself. And then his wife says to him in the midst of all of that, says, Job, curse God and die. I don't think she had the gift of encouragement. <laughs> Notice what Job says to her, Job 2 verse 10, he says, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. See, it's clear as we read the story that Job at this point is struggling to understand some things about God. Is God really the kind of person that would let this happen to a righteous man? Is God really the kind of God who would let good thing, bad things happen to someone who's good? Job is struggling. Now, the verse says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
Remember that for the first wave hit Job, it says, in all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now there's a little qualification going on here. Job did not sin in what he said, the second wave. But in his heart, he's starting to struggle. Some of you are there right now. You might not have voiced it, but in your heart, in the midst of what you're going through, you're struggling. You're struggling with, why would God let this happen to you? Now, next in the story, we're told that Job's friends hear about his trouble. So we're back now. Of course, we're on the lower stage. We're on the earth stage. And Job's got some great friends. They hear about what's happened to him, and they come to him. His friends are even named in the story. Elipaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Tahamathite, all come together. So they arrive, and when they first see Job, they just, all of them just break out weeping, crying. They sprinkle dust on their heads, and then they just sit next to Job without a word. I mean, think about this. Usually when someone's suffering and you, and you visit them, you tend to want to cheer them up a little bit. You don't just break out crying about how horrible it is, usually, thinking that might not be a good thing. But this tells you how desperate the situation is here. Job's friends realize there's no pretending here. This is just devastating. And they just begin to weep. And then they sat on the ground with Job seven days and seven nights without saying a word. I mean, his suffering is so great, they just sit there and mourn with him for seven consecutive days and nights. I want you to think about that. Just imagine that moment. I think this is the best biblical example of what the Apostle Paul teaches under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 12, 15, that we are to mourn with those who mourn. I mean, think about the things that we tend to try to do when people are mourning. Things that Paul doesn't say for us to do, like uh, give really good advice to those who are mourning. We're not told to do that. We're told to mourn with those who mourn. And God will work in ways beyond our understanding through that action. But think about that. Seven days and seven nights just sitting with him without saying a word. Do you have any friends that would do that for you? Do you have anyone that you would do that for? I mean, this, this, these are pretty amazing friends, you'd have to admit. And Joe must have been a pretty amazing friend to them for them to come do it. Well, it's too bad that his friends didn't stay silent. Because after seven days, when they began to speak, they not only said some things that were not helpful, they said some things that were wrong. 28 chapters worth. <laughs> but it wasn't Job who first, I mean, it wasn't Job's friends who first broke the silence. It was Job. After seven days and seven nights of silence, if Job could have just repeated himself in his response after the first wave hit and just say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not how he responds the second time. 
The second time when he finally opens his mouth, he curses the day he was born. And for the next 28 chapters, he's pouring out a staggering level of frustration and confusion towards God. And Job's friends feel like they need to correct him, correct his theology during this time. And over and over again, they keep repeating the same fundamental concept to Job. That is this. Job, whatever you are experiencing in your life right, right now, it is what you have called upon yourself because of how you've lived. If you have, if you're prospering, it's because you are obedient to God. And if you're suffering, it must be because you are disobeying God, Job. And this is a real frustrating thing for Job because Job knows his friends are wrong. He knows that he hasn't done the things that they're saying he must have done. Well, in the midst of arguing with Job's friends, Job says two things that are wrong about God. Again, I'm summarizing the entire book of Job for you. He says two things that are wrong. Number one, God must not care. Number two, God must not be in control. For these things to happen to me, I've done nothing wrong. Either God doesn't care or he's not in control or both. By the way, I think these are two charges that most people make toward God in the midst of their suffering. I mean, they don't say it out loud most of the time, I think, but in our kind of whisper it in our subconscious, do you really care? Do you see what's happening? How could you allow this to me? Are you in control? How could you be in control when this happened? And Job finally reaches a point when we get to Job chapter 31 where he says to God, I want some answers. Job 31, verse 35. Job says, oh, that I had one to hear me. I, I, I see him shouting this. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Let the Almighty answer me. I want some answers. I want to know why. Beginning in chapter 38, God answers him. What is amazing about the way God answers him is God answers him by raising before him 70 questions. He answers Job's questions by asking Job 70 questions. Things like, Job, do you, do you really have any understanding about how things work in this universe? Do you really know how much I really do care? Actually, there are two discourses here. The first one begins in chapter 38, verse 4, continues through chapter 39. This first discourse, God is answering Job's first charge that he's uncaring or unkind. By the way, again, have you, have you never said that in your own heart, in the quietness of your own heart? You know, you ever just said, you know, ask God the question, I mean, are you listening to me? Are you involved? Do you care? That's where Job is. If you've never asked that, maybe you just haven't lived long enough. But here's what God says, beginning in verse 4. He's going to raise a multitude of questions to Job. He's going to say, Job, how much do you know about how much I care? 
How much do you know about my wisdom? How much do you know about how I've ordered the entire universe that is screaming? The order that I put together is screaming about my care for everything I created. But I want you to notice all through God's response to Job, there are no answers. There are only questions. This is real important that we see this. God does not answer Job's questions with answers. He answers with questions. Job 38, verse 4, for example, God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Down to verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? He's talking about the order of everything he's made. He wants Job to see. All of this order is screaming about how much he cares. Job 38, verse 28. Has the rain a father? Or who's begotten the drops of dew? Verse 29, from whose, from whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? God is saying, think, Job. I mean, you're accusing me of being uncaring. You're accusing me of not being understanding or not being sympathetic. But I've made a world with a depth which you could never understand. And it's running in perfect order and symmetry. And all of this is because I care. That's how much I love it. And then God's not through because now he's going to turn from there to the animal kingdom. This is a beautiful passage. If you ever doubt that God really cares, this is a good passage for you to read. Job 39, starting in verse 1. Again, God is talking to Job with more questions. He says, do you know the time the mountain goat gives birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Do you know the time they give birth? They kneel down. They bring forth their young. They get rid of their labor pains. Their offspring become strong. They grow up in the open field. They leave and do not return to them. All this God is paying attention to and watching and no one else is around. God's saying, you don't think I care? I care about every little creature and every little thing that's going on. Jump down to verse 19, Job 39, 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Stretching his wings toward the south? Is it your command, your command, that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Does God care? The evidence that he cares is everywhere. That's what he's trying to get Job to see. Of course he cares. Again, I mean, I can feel for Job in his first accusation. I've been in pain and, and in my smaller thoughts, in my subconscious, I've, I've, I've wrestled with God. How could you care for me and let this happen to me? Again, I can only see what's on the lower stage. I don't know what's going on in the upper stage, and neither do you. So that's Job's first accusation. But what God is saying to Job and raising all these questions is, if I am a God of infinite care and concern for all of these little things in creation, of course I care for you, Job. Of course I do. Then we get to the second discourse. It begins in chapter 40, verse 6. And God's going to speak again to Job. 
and he's got more questions for Job. From chapter 40, verse 6 to chapter 41, God's going to answer the second accusation made by Job, which is, God, you're not in control. You're not able to control things. You know, at worst, you're incompetent, maybe, or you just have no power to rule at all. And so now God's going to answer this charge. And God's going to speak about two animals, the behemoth and the leviathan. Now, the behemoth in chapter 40 most commentators believe is probably, most likely, the hippopotamus. And the Leviathan in chapter 41 is most likely the Egyptian crocodile. At this time, and during this time in the life of Job, these are most likely the two, these are the two most uncontrollable creatures on the planet. They're large animals. The behemoth weighs 8,000 pounds. Of course, he lives in the water. He's an uncontrollable beast. Man cannot tame him. So God wants to talk about these two animals to Job for a minute. Job would have understood about these animals. Job 40, verse 15. Behold, the behemoth which I made as well as you, Job, he eats grass like an ox, down to verse 23. If a river rages, he's not alarmed. He's confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him? When he's on watch with barbs, can anyone pierce his nose? See, God is saying that this beast, this beast cannot be domesticated. He cannot be controlled. God's saying to Job, you can't control that beast. But Job, I can. I can control him. Now, God's not through because now he wants to talk about his second beast, the Leviathan, chapter 41, likely the great Egyptian crocodile. Let's pick it up. Job 41, verse 1. He says, can you draw out the Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. Verse, thir- verse 8. Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Verse 10. No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. Who then is he that can stand before me? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. God is saying, you can't control the Leviathan, Job, but I can. In fact, Job, I've got it. Everything under heaven I got under control. I got it all under control. So Job makes two accusations of God in the midst of his suffering. He says, God, either you don't care or you're not in control. God answers both accusations, pointing out that he cares more and he's more in control than Job could ever even imagine. And then finally, we get to the end of the book of Job. Job gets it. And Job responds. Again, after each of these of God's given questions to Job, Job is finally going to make a reply. After the first one, chapter 40, verses 3 through 4, Job responds, with God answering, really, the first accusation that you don't care, Job responds to what God said, making it very clear God obviously cares. Verse 3 and 4, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm finished charging you with anything. He's humiliated. I have no right to accuse you, God, for not caring. Obviously, you care. You've ordered this whole universe 
in a way that all is working perfectly in order, screaming that you care, all the way down to every little animal, of course you care about me. And then he answers God the second discourse and says in 42, verse 6, Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. So Job is saying, uh, I'm sorry for thinking you don't care. I know that you care. I'm sorry for, for believing that you weren't in control. I know you're in control. So Job has this terrific change of mind. But I want you to know this is real important. He had his change of mind, but God didn't give him answers to his questions. God never told him about the upper stage. God never told him about the conversation with Satan, that he's proven to Satan something. He never told him any of that. God didn't give him any answers. What did God do? God overwhelmed Job with the knowledge of who he is and what he's like. So here's a question. If I could just put one question to summarize the book of Job, here would be the question. Is there any comfort when there are no answers? See, if you haven't been at that point in your life, then you will. You need to be able to have an answer to that. Is there any comfort when there are no answers? The wise person, the wise man, or the wise woman understands that comfort comes from believing the truth about who God is and what he's like, not in answers. Several years ago, my nephew, Trey Hutchison, was a Bossier City police officer in Louisiana, was shot and killed. Now, when he was growing up, Tracy and I were his favorites, and he was our favorite, and we just loved him so much and loved spending time with him. I still remember when he turned 12 and gave his life to Christ, how excited he was. He became the big-heartedest police officer in the city of Bossier City. And uh, he's, one night he was called to a domestic violence phone call what he didn't know on his way there is he didn't know that the man had already told his wife he's going to shoot a cop tonight. He didn't know what he's walking into. When he went to the front door to answer the call, he had his vest on, but around the corner the man ran with a shotgun and just reaction. He just reacted and put his arm up in the one opening where the vest didn't cover and he was shot with a shotgun and killed right away. And then the man turned the gun on himself and killed himself. Tracy and I were, when that happened, we were on a plane to Chicago to some meetings. We got off the plane and we got into the airport where the phones worked and, and we got the phone call that Trey had been killed. And we couldn't get a plane ride until the next morning to come back and then make our way over to Louisiana. But I remember laying in a hotel room looking at the ceiling that night Asking why, why the nicest guy in the whole city, the finest young man I've ever, ever known, why this was allowed to happen. But again, I only know what's going on in the lower stage. I don't know what's going on in the upper stage. Neither do you. And I didn't get any answers. But I'll tell you, 
how, you, how we have to negotiate times like that. You negotiate times like that by knowing what God is like, knowing who he is and what he's like. That's where the comfort and strength comes from, not in the answers. Over the years, I've received a lot of phone calls during the middle of the night, someone crying on the other end, saying things like, my child just died, or I just found out I have cancer. My husband just walked out on me. I just lost my job. The list goes on and on and on. People want answers. I understand. A lot of times, they expect pastors to have answers. What do you say to someone when, there's, when you don't have an answer? I'll tell you what I basically have learned to say over the years more and more. So it's basically captured in the gospel song. It goes like this. When the, when the darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Is there any comfort when there are no answers? The deepest comforts do not come from answers. That's what the wise man or wise woman learned. The deepest comforts do not come from answers. The deepest comfort comes from knowing God. Knowing who he is and what he's like. And that'll have to be enough for us until we see him. And then we know as we're known. And then we have answers. We praise him for his wisdom for how he controlled it all. Let's stand here for closing prayer. We're going to actually sing that song that I just quoted, When Christ the Solid Rock, I Stand. Some of you are there. Some of you right now are in the land of Uz. You're there. And you know that you need some prayer. You're just saying, I just, I'd like someone to pray for me. I'm there right now, and I don't know why, and I just, I need God to touch me today. So as we sing this song, just slip out your seat and come on down, and some people come up, and you don't have to say anything to them. You don't have to explain it. They'll come up and just lay a hand on your shoulder and pray for you. So, Father, we ask you, Lord, that you would just enable us to just be a family right now, like we really are, not worry about what anyone thinks about us, Lord, we just pray for grace now for all those who need prayer to receive it. Pray you just make this a safe place for everybody. And we ask you, O oh Lord, as people come forward that, and they're prayed for, would you pour out grace on them? Grace to enable them to know that knowing you is going to be enough through all this. And be able to hold on to you and your presence will be very real during this time. So as we sing the song, if you'd like prayer, just slip, go ahead and slip out of your seat and come on down and we'll pray for you. Darkness seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high stormy day, my anchor holds within me. Let's sing that again. When darkness seems to hide his face. 
a few more people to come down and lay hands on some of these that are standing by themselves. Just a few more people come pray. Don't leave anybody up here by themselves. Father, we tell you we're so glad that we belong to you. We're so glad for the truth that you are good all the time, that you're always caring, that you're always in control. We pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit that you enable everyone who's suffering, everyone who's in a land of us right now, Lord, to really sense your nearness. We pray for that revelation of who you are and what you're like that would sink deep into their soul and spirit and be enough. And be enough when there are no answers. That would be enough. Lord, we pray that we would be wise men and women who know, Lord, that the the greatest strength doesn't come from answers anyway. It comes from knowing you. And we all learn to walk closer to you during difficult times and good times. And Lord, we pray that uh, this truth will be really planted deep in our hearts. And so for those who are, who have, are headed to the land of us right now and is right around the corner, they don't know it, Lord, would you give them the grace to be ready to handle what's coming? Pray, Lord, you use this to be a blessing to many others this week. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus.